Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are here to answer your questions on the Bible. You've got a question about a particular verse you'd like to explore, how to apply the Bible to the current challenges you might be facing in your walk with God, uh, maybe tough questions lobbed your way by skeptics or non-believers about your faith in the Bible as God's inspired word. Hey, feel free to bring those questions on. We'd love to be able to answer them. And of course, if you'd like to talk about the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we'll be happy to explore those avenues with you as well. Uh, wherever we go on the broadcast, entirely up to you. Only one standard for the questions that we answer. Just make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scripture, we'll be happy to provide it. As always, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Uh, Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how can they do it? Well, if you're joining us online, you can do so through our website, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y-ChristianFellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be able to engage with us face-to-face during our live streams from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. Also note, if you'd like to join us after hours, our live stream, of course, will go to our website during those times, but we'll be airing previous broadcasts constantly for you to engage in at any time, as well as a countdown clock so you can set your watch accordingly for when we'll be on next. Note as well, if you would like to join us on social media, our uh, Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you subscribe or like us there, you'll be notified when we are going live, so you can note in your schedule when that will be. And of course, to listen to previous broadcasts as they're recorded and categorized. Any question is available on the broadcast, or uh, welcome on the broadcast, as long as they are sincere and relevant to the Bible. We'll be happy to engage with you on them, as well as prayer requests and anything else you would like to know pertaining to life and godliness, uh, even perhaps our religions hostile to the Christian faith. We have uh, some extensive research available for Islam, for uh, Hinduism, for Buddhism, for uh, the non-Christian cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, anything and everything that you can offer here, we will do the best that we can to answer them in a biblical matter and to clarify and equip you for not only your relationship with God, but also for evangelism and even apologetics, giving a reason for the hope that is within you, ergo the name of the broadcast. We're looking forward to engaging with you, but noting that the best we can do is to hand it off to God. Why don't we do that before we get started? Absolutely. Father, I thank you so much that you love us, and I thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, and your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Please, Lord, shine that light on us and uh, allow us uh, having that balance of grace and truth to be able to see the issues of life through uh, not our lens, not our backgrounds or biases. Uh, but, Lord, uh, instead, let us see it through your eyes, Lord. Guide us into your truth as you promised you would through the ministry and power of your spirit. We look forward to what you're going to do on the program today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, uh, before we signed off yesterday, there was a question that was asked just 
uh, down to the wire, I guess is the term would say. Yeah. And it was amusing. We could deal with it just uh, briefly. A friend of ours who comes from a decidedly uh, Pentecostal background uh, wanted to know if writing in tongues uh, is a legitimate <laughs> spiritual gift. Uh, I've been accused of writing in tongues by people who have tried to make heads or tails out of my uh, my handwriting. Yeah, and yeah. note that's kind of the theme is no one knows what they're writing, but there's this spiritual theme that gift of tongues is portrayed to them as speaking nonsense, but it has some spiritual meaning. Whereas in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the gift of tongues, notice this thing that comes out of our mouths here, uh, is in reference to th- that gift being worthless if no one understands it, that it is right. meant to be an actual language between you and God, and it's meant to be a sign to believers and none. Now note those specific parameters are spelled out in the chapter as far as where and when, but they will not let uh, facts, I guess, get in the way of a well-worked theory or experience. So when, uh, I guess, if that was a legitimate spiritual gift, it wouldn't be tongues, it'd be fingers, because that's what's being used to write things. But let's just take it another step back. It's a false assumption to say that tongues, or any spiritual gift for that matter, serves no purpose or makes no sense. It will make sense to someone involved in the process, but the problem is it's not advertised as such to the people who grew up in this culture. So to note the proper definition and use of tongues, we recommend First uh, Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 in noting that the best spiritual gift and the sign of salvation isn't tongues, but love, specifically the kind of love of God that's described in First Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Yeah. Anything more we'd want to note on that? Well, you know, I think there's another issue that runs uh, parallel to that uh, when someone says, you know, well, what about writing in tongues? Well, a couple of things really get my discernometer going. You write with is, your tongue. Uh, when, uh, you know, people talk about writing in tongues, uh, they seem to be getting dangerously close to an occult practice called automatic writing, where an individual just kind of blisses out and they sort of allow uh, the, the powers that be to uh, write uh, whatever uh, they want written. Uh, it's kind of seancey. Certainly uh, dabbles with the occult. Uh, our good friend uh, Adrian Van Vactor could talk a little bit about automatic writing, and uh, much like uh, working with a Ouija board, uh, it's very easily explained as the power of suggestion and so on. Uh, not really an occultic uh, supernatural practice, but certainly not something we want to uh, monkey around with at all or try to Christianize in a sense. Uh, some people have. Uh, Sadly, uh, some of the roots of uh, some popular Christian devotionals that uh, seem to be uh, having a lot of traction in our day uh, trace their roots back to some people that were practicing automatic writing and tried to Christianize it. So we certainly don't want to go down that path. The other thing, uh, and this is really a principle that I think comes into play whenever spiritual gifts begin to be practiced in any kind of local body, whether it's a, a small group Bible study, whether it's a church setting, you know, Uh, We should always attempt uh, to, if we're going to walk in the Holy Spirit, first and foremost decide that uh, whatever we call walking in the Spirit or moving in the Holy Spirit is going to be guarded by the Spirit-inspired, Spirit-given Word of God. Uh, and, And if it doesn't line up, with the Holy Spirit inspired and given word of God. If it's just something that we sort of do because it feels good or because it's a tradition that has emerged in a particular denomination or a church group, 
Well, then I think we got to take a step back. Uh, you know, I just love what First Corinthians chapter four and verse six uh, says. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another. You know, we don't want to go beyond the Word of God. When someone goes beyond the Word of God, they haven't achieved something higher. They inevitably get involved with something that's lower. And this isn't saying that you can't or shouldn't learn or know about anything apart from the Bible. It's saying that you shouldn't try to out-Bible the Bible when it comes to our instructions about how to have a relationship with God and the truth therein. Yeah, you know, obviously we're not uh, arguing against somebody studying physics or something like that. But uh, one of the things that I think is really, really key is, uh, all right, where is that written? Um, Okay, uh, you've got a group, say, for instance, and this is very popular departure, I think, from the clear teaching of God's Word. You've got a group that gets together and a hundred different people in this group speak in tongues all at once. Then it sort of dies down and someone up front, maybe a pastor or someone stands up, And uh, they give one interpretation over all of these hundreds and hundreds of people speaking. Well, what's wrong with that? Uh, It seems to be standard operating procedure. Well, a couple things wrong with that. First of all, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that when you gather together, two or at the most three should speak in a tongue, each in turn, and let let them interpret. If there is no interpreter, let that person keep silent in the church. There's one interpretation for each of these utterances in tongues. In fact, we're given another really interesting insight in 1 Corinthians 14 in that uh, the Apostle Paul says that you are giving thanks very well, but the other person isn't edified. In other words, tongues is not something that uh, we uh, see falling in the realm of prophecy. And uh, more often than not, the utterances in tongues I've heard in these settings you know, goes along the line of my children, I love you and I want to bless you and, and things like this, where it's God talking to us. No, rather tongues in Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14 are us speaking about God to other people on a horizontal level. Uh, so, you know, when we check these sort of things out, we find that the word of God can keep us from departing from very sincere, maybe very well-woven, very well-worked traditions, uh, but that ultimately uh, can end up leading us astray or end up uh, leading us into something that just is not productive. God wants things to be done decently and in order. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, make some kind of bold declaration that the gift of tongues has ceased. Uh, the, The Bible simply doesn't teach that until that which is perfect has come. And 1 Corinthians 13 seems to indicate that's when we see Jesus face to face. Tell them we need every spiritual gift uh, we can get. But on the other side of the coin, just because spiritual gifts are from today, not everything that's billed as a spiritual gift is the real thing. We've got to be discerning spiritual consumers. And we recognize a true spiritual gift based on whether or not it lines up with our spiritual authority. That is the Bible. If you right. use something else, You're not a Christian. Um, Here's another question from the same individual who wants to know, why shouldn't we name names? Uh, And then they go on to note they're watching YouTubers and uh, Christian speakers call out false teachers. And then they used it as a proof text, uh, Paul the Apostle calling out people by name, uh, Alexander the Coppersmith, for example, in 2 Timothy. Yeah, or or John calling out Diotrephes as one who puts himself 
forward in the uh, the church. Yeah. Or Luke in uh, the book of Acts, and this is in the context quoting Peter, but he calls out specifically uh, the, uh, um, what was his name, the uh, teacher uh, who wanted to lay hands on people by the spirit by Simon, um, the sorcerer. Yes. Uh, that's where the term simony yeah. came from he trying named, to buy a spiritual position. He yeah. named names. Yes. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, the reason Yari and let me just make a quick clarification here. It's not unbiblical or unchristian to name names. If you're calling out a bad teacher on this program, us specifically, we prefer not to name names because we find it opinion-based here, less productive and not really the goal of what we're talking about. Uh, we wouldn't have a problem per se uh, calling out bad teachers. You've We've mentioned before Michael Heiser, Andy Stanley, and other individuals that we would wholeheartedly disagree with regarding their handling of Scripture and say, because of this individual's popularity, we strongly caution against their ministry. But note, it was the question that named the name first. They're asking about this person. However, when uh, you get questions sent along into this radio program that what we want to do is to equip you to be able to respond effectively not just to bad teachers but bad teachings now this is my opinion yeah. this is my thought that's key if you run into a bad teacher and you remember oh on youtube those people that i trust that gave all these biblical examples as to why this teacher was bad i now know that that person with that name is not a reliable person or at least has done things to harm their credibility as a good bible teacher doesn't mean everything they say is going to be apostate but it does mean that they uh have been cautioned against. Now, best case scenario, what do you get out of that? This is my opinion. This is my perspective. You avoided one false teacher. On the other hand, when questions are asked regarding individuals, and I encourage people, can you not name names? What's the idea? Do you reveal the false teaching? Now, what happens? What's the productivity of that? Opinion, my perspective. You come across five different names that all share the same bad teaching. And you recognize, regardless of the name attached to it, this yeah. is not biblical. Yeah, that's really so good. So that's yeah. how we, or why we rather, Yari, uh, encourage not naming names, but just sharing teachings. It is an opinion. It is a preference. And we in no way would demean, demonize, or dismiss ministries that do call out names. The only difference is they can make individual videos kind of rapid fire, go into these different names on a case-by-case -case basis. We on the broadcast want to equip people for much broader ministry and discernment in their walks with God. So uh, again, I've clarified like five times now, and I'll do it a sixth. My opinion, clarifying, this is my perspective. I find it more productive, Dad, perhaps you agree with me, that it's going to accomplish more in your walk with God to deal with bad ideas than just to tell you the names of certain bad teachers. Not because there's anything wrong with naming names. We see that exemplified in the Bible on a case-by-case -case point. But on the other hand, our ministry, our calling is to equip you to respond, give a reason for the hope that is within you. That's done far more when you address the bad idea, not just the bad individual. If someone takes a different approach, God bless them. But uh, this is our preference. And to those listening, we just ask that you would respect that perspective. Now, if you have questions about a specific individual, just in a broad sense, what do you think of their teachings? We'll answer. But if, on the other hand, you come to us and say, uh, oh, uh, Andy Stanley said, unhitch our faith from our scriptures. And, the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, all the 
sticky business that follows up with that. Well, it would say, well, forget Andy Stanley. Let's focus on should we distance ourselves from the Old Testament and evangelism. Now let's look at examples in the New Testament, see how much sense it makes. Now let's look at uh, some passages that uh, are quoted from the Old Testament, see how little sense they'll make if you don't understand the Old Testament explained those things. Yeah. And then we go on from there. But yeah. if you know Andy Stanley and now know that's a bad approach towards Bible study and evangelism, then you avoided Andy Stanley. If on the other hand, you'd say, now wait, someone is teaching. Let's avoid the Old Testament and evangelism, regardless of it's Andy Stanley's name, regardless yeah. of anyone else's yeah. name. Now you yeah. know how to deal with these things in the broader yeah. sense. Yeah, let's take on a, another controversial uh, issue I saw making its way through the interwebs today. We were meaning to get to your email, Dave. Thank you for sending it by comment as well. Yeah, a, uh, a major Christian publication, we don't really need to name names, uh, came out and said that uh, it would be important for Christians not to draw a line in the sand as far as contending for a uh, literal six-day creation and a rejection of the theory of evolution because it just turns non-believers off. Um, wow. Uh, you know, I could talk about this particular magazine and, uh, you know, what a disappointing turn of events it is that this magazine that used to be a pretty decent source of spiritual input, uh, you know, we could, we could talk about the magazine, but uh, it's probably more important to talk about, okay, why is it, crucial to say, well, um, you know, can we uh, harmonize evolutionary theory and the book of Genesis? Is this a, a, a bridge builder? I'll take the is it a bridge builder side of it, but let me ask, Sean, can we as believers in Christ look at the Bible and harmonize that with uh, Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, and that's the tricky part is which theory of evolution, because there's like hundreds. If we're talking about abiogenesis, uh, macroevolution in the sense of goo to you by way of the zoo and from the uh, infantile to the reptile to the gentile, those kinds of uh, principles, <laughs> then we have problems because almost all, if not at least speaking modestly, most of the quote-unquote evidence and studies that they've done to research speciation and these transitions from forms into various others are either made with serious, serious logical presuppositions that have to assume the conclusion rather than to demonstrate it, or are literally based on fraud. There is no other way to put it. If on the other hand, we're talking about, well, I equivocate, meaning I use two words that mean different things, but because they sound the same or even if they are the same, I exchange the meanings in different contexts as if they had the same context. I'd say, well, evolution in the sense of structural adaptation, that uh, within a species, I want to be careful of the scientific terms I use, uh, within a species, uh, you can have variation adapting to different environments. In mountainous and uh, cold climates, you get Siberian huskies. In, you know, uh, bizarre uh, Habsburgian dynasties and hunting dogs, you get uh, dachshunds and so forth, yeah. or hunting gophers. Those are both dogs, but you see a very big difference between the little wiener dog and the big old bushki, right? Right. So... Uh, no. Ask in the comments if you want to know the significance of that nickname. But when we're talking about that, we recognize there's no conflict 
in Scripture between God making a creation that can support, maintain, and preserve itself. But then you say, oh, we'll see there's changes within a species. Therefore, Darwin's theory is correct that we had transitions from one species to another. We have no evidence of that. And the evidence that has been put forward is either based on artistic portrayals of skeletons that were later discovered to be from badgers or fish or are based on just an outright fudging of the data because we had already made up our minds and we need the grant money. It Again, we don't want to make harsh generalizations. I'm sure all of these scientists are sincere, or if not most of them. But when we're talking about this issue with people, it's not going to ultimately lead to a conversation we want to have because they'll just keep changing the words around. If I'm talking to someone who insists upon evolution as the end-all, be-all of Christianity, uh, again, I don't uh, want them to set the terms of the debate, so I try to answer the question with questions. I said, okay, so this is how life developed, but where did it start? This is the question that we actually can answer. These are issues that we can deal with. If they really press the issue, I'd say, okay, can you show me evidence of one transitional species? Not transitional forms, not things assumed to be middle ground creatures. I mean actual fossil evidence of transitional forms. Then in action, in living color, I will look it up. I will look at responses to that evidence and then ask, would you allow for that response? Do you think that's adequate? And if we can get on more appropriate conversations, I want to bring it back to their credit to the person of Jesus Christ, because if Jesus resurrected from the dead, then whether or not macro or micro, for that matter, evolution is true, it's going to be irrelevant, and I trust the Spirit to lead them into all truth on these secondary matters. But if, on the other hand, and this is your half of the question, when it comes to being a bridge builder, do we end up actually losing more if we grant that? Well, you know, there's a couple things. Uh, First of all, when we take a look at the plain meaning of the Scripture— it is really hard to shoehorn billions of years and random processes into a biblical worldview. Uh, it simply is not uh, structured in such a way that it is uh, allowed to happen. And I think uh, the Lord was very uh, clear about all of that. Uh, and we take a look at the book of Genesis. We don't see Genesis laid out as poetry. We see it laid out as history, and whenever we see a historical uh, genealogy, if you will, uh, we don't treat it as some kind of once upon a time fairy tale. We're talking about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David or anyone else, uh, and uh, yet we are told in the book of Genesis that this is the generation of the earth in the day it was created. Uh, Toledoth is the word that is used over and over again, and we are even given the genealogical background. Uh, of the earth. When the subject comes up, though, uh, I guess it really depends in a sense, and I think you hit this, uh, this point really well, is how we frame the conversation. If it's just, well, you, you say this, and I'm going to say this, and we're going to bump heads here, well, then uh, we're not going to get very far. But if you can frame things in such a way as saying, you know, uh, it's really interesting, uh, at least for me, you know, being raised uh, on Jacques Cousteau specials and National Geographic and, you know, the old uh, evolutionary parade, you know, with a little uh, uh, barrel of monkeys guy at the end and then the human being at the other, uh, you know, we just sort of assumed that all that was true. But what a shocker it was to me. I received Jesus as my Savior. I still had all my evolutionary baggage that I brought with me into the Christian life. 
But the more I studied it, the more I began to see that a lot of what I was told was fact or, you know, is beyond question, the science is settled, wasn't settled science, that really a biblical worldview made an awful lot more sense. We take a look at the world around us. Uh, you know, do we, for instance, see in any other situation incredible uh, complexity arising from random chaos and disorder? One of the analogies that I like to use with people is, you know, here's this watch I have here. Now, you know, a lot of people think that this watch was designed but it was really far more uh, easily explained by scientists in this way. You see, a few billion years ago, Mount Apple blew up. And from the bowels of the earth, uh, the simple uh, right uh, uh, silicons that, that make up uh, the transistors involved with all of this came online. And there was uh, this uh, grove of, of rubber trees that made this uh, watch band you see here. And, and uh, you know, with lightning strikes and storms and things like this over billions and billions of years, eventually this is what came to pass, this Apple Watch you see on my wrist here. Well, if I tried to tell you that that's how we got Apple Watches, you'd probably give me points for imagination, but we'd go, well, no, that's not how that happened at all. That's kind of ridiculous. But this Apple Watch on my left hand uh, is far more simple than even the most simple cell that you and I can never even imagine. So, you know, when you bring this up, you know, and I, when I bring it up, I'm just like, hey, you know, have you ever considered... Uh, an alternative to, you know, what you've been sold. Uh, and, you know, as far as it really uh, building bridges with non-believers to say, oh, yeah, you know, we all kind of believe that, you know, you can believe in evolutionism and, and you can believe in uh, the message of the Bible at the same time. You know, um, speaking as someone who was on the outside in, looking at that, sometimes Christians would try to say that to me, and it just seemed kind of insincere. It, it seemed like, eh, I don't really think you're putting your your cards on the table. I'll never forget uh, talking to a friend of mine who's a retired attorney, and uh, he was a uh, confessed atheist, and then I showed him that he was probably really just a confused agnostic because he didn't have all knowledge of all things in the world. But we'd have these really uh, great ongoing discussions with each other. And, uh, you know, one day he came up to me while I was running on the treadmill, and he looked uh, like uh, pleased as the cat that ate the canary, and he stood in front of the treadmill and he goes, you know, I just got out of the sauna and there was this Christian pastor in there. And he told me that you can believe in evolution and believe in the message of the Bible at the same time. And I just kind of, you know, put the thing on pause and drew a big sigh and I went, oh boy, here we go. But what he said next really stunned me. He said, man, that made me sick. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, anybody who's read the book of Genesis knows you can't fit the theory of evolution in there. He goes, I totally disagree with you, but at least you're consistent. And, you know, that word consistent, I think that's what the world's looking for from us, not people that are trying to schmooze the world and get on their good side and say, oh, <laughs> I'm not like those fundies over there. You can really... No, they, they want to know that we put our faith and our trust in the Bible. And if we can tell people why we believe the Bible is historically accurate, and, you know, if uh, you're still under the uh, conception that uh, somehow you can fit uh, the message of the Bible from the Old Testament or even the New Testament 
into an evolutionary uh, paradigm. Uh, consider Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. There the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin, man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now notice what this is saying. Prior to the fall in the garden, there was no sin in the world. There was no death in the world. God looked at his previously good creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 and pronounced it very good. That means that it was without fault or flaw. Now, when we look at the fossil record, if we stretch that over billions of years and just say, oh, well, man came on the scene at the very end of all of that and, and, and so on. Well, God would have had to look at nature, red and fang and claw, and say that was very good. We have dinosaur bones that show examples of having bone cancer. God would have had to say bone cancer was very good. Uh, the fact of the matter is the plain reading of Scripture makes more sense, especially in light of the fact that when we have loved ones die or even our beloved house pets die, we almost instinctively realize that something is going on here that shouldn't be happening. You know, if death is really the driver of uh, what's going on in this universe. I had a biology prof in college say that we are all just little islands in a sea of death. And uh, the survival of the fittest means the lack of survival of the less fit. So death is really a good thing. Uh, try to go to a memorial and, and feel that way. It just doesn't work. It's not true to real life. And, uh, you know, I just kind of go back, Sean, to something uh, the uh, great Christian philosopher and writer Francis Schaeffer used to say that uh, Christianity is like a, a key to reality that fits exactly right. Uh, you know, we look around at ourselves and what do we see? Do we see randomness and disorder or do we see intelligence and design? When we look within ourselves, do we see, uh, say, uh, a lack of purpose in human beings or a lack of a desire for unconditional love? Or are we literally hotwired to need a purpose in our life and to need unconditional love? within our lives. When we look at the person of Jesus Christ, do we see a myth, a legend? Uh, do we see someone whose resurrection from the dead was just cooked up by some bored Galilean fishermen drying their nets someday, saying there's got to be a better way to make a living? Well, uh, to quote Clint Eastwood, dying ain't much of a way to make a living, boy. Uh, most of those, uh, in fact, all of the disciples, aside from the Apostle John, uh, died brutal, grisly deaths rather than deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I look at that, Dad, I look at that evidence, and I come to a conclusion. Yeah, the Christian worldview um, makes perfect sense. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, you know, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not just because I see it, but by it I also see everything else. Yeah, so when we're having these conversations, the most productive thing is not to give concessions to antithetical or opposite worldviews from the Bible, but, and this is well-intended though it may be their efforts, but kind of giving up too much along the way, uh, we call it poisoning the well in argument terms. Bringing the conversation back to the resurrection and the evidence therein. If they have difficulties with Genesis and objections literally trained into them by modern education and uh, essentially Nietzsche philosophy, then we can deal with greater issues. And by we, I mean him. But if this is just a head trip or people come to you with the theory of macroevolution and so forth, 
in times in outreach, I'll entertain that for a bit, but you kind of have to assess the person. Is this uh, just someone trying to make a stink? Is this someone who's genuinely curious about these things, who have looked into the issues and said, well, I just can't reconcile the Bible because this has been proven? Well, then you can deal with what's been quote-unquote proven. But if, on the other hand, uh, and this is usually true, especially on the Internet, they're just there to uh, kind of throw a big word out there like evolution. It's like, oh, I, I know that word. That's, that's scary. Well, that's, of course, not going to accomplish anything. So just avoid those bear traps. Make sure that there are opportunities and make sure if that opportunity presents itself, the focus is on Jesus. A question from David. This is sent along to us by email. And once again, for our YouTube page, who wants to know about... Shout out to our friends in the Philippines, too. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, questions regarding the recent controversy and we'll name the name because it's directly relevant to the issue, um, regarding the uh, yeah moral compromises that were unfolded in the documentary that was released on Hillsong Church Exposed. Uh, for those who aren't aware and are, uh, I guess, still using the Internet, um, the controversy is surrounding several of the more prominent figures and the stories essentially uh, insinuations of sexual mis- misconduct, uh, sleeping and uh, pain pill abuse and dependency as a result of accidents that led to inappropriate behavior. Uh, of course, uh, even accusations of sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. and then the most uh, common among mega churches is uh, financial extortion and embezzlement. But all that being said, um, when it comes to the accusations against the individuals, areas of moral compromise, those are, I think, the biggest ones. Let's uh, first start with the Bible, and then we can build out to specifics. Uh, The first thing to note when it comes to any accusation made, even if you disagree with the ministry, uh, towards anyone ever, and just full disclosure here, not a fan of Hillsong's teachings, but their fellow Christians through and through, um, I would first start with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says, If anyone's caught in any trespass, seek to restore such a man considering yourself, lest you also be tempted in noting the point that's made in the chapter. Uh, When it comes to areas of sin, you've got them, I've got them, and if everything that we have ever done or failed to ultimately uphold as far as our consistent Christian walks, we'd all have documentaries written about us. But what we can be thankful for is that not only God has mercy on us, but we also follow, or at least claim to, follow a God that should also be expressed in us having mercy towards each other. It doesn't mean that we don't allow for immediate um, legislative consequences. If someone, uh, Dad, you can attest to this, uh, were to come to us and confess to, say, for example, committing murder, we would ultimately remind them that this confession is uh, accepted before God, but we would still call the police, that there is an answer to local government, and that is biblical as well. Yeah. If, on the other hand, uh, we're to note, well, these people should know better. That's the second passage I'd cite, James chapter 3 and verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, because in doing so you incur stricter judgment. Uh, when these people put themselves up in areas of ministry and hadn't dealt with certain things in their life, that's why it's cautioned. These things are brought into a greater spotlight. So when it comes to any area of controversy, any area of moral failings, uh, say the Ravi Zacharias scandals that took place and so forth. We were grieved. We didn't uh, justify the guy, but when it came to the verification of those accusations in a court of law and as well legally from his own family members and so forth, we acknowledged that's terrible. I'm glad that we serve a God of mercy, but man, what a blow 
to the impact he could have had would he have dealt with those things honestly and earlier. But when it comes to the Hillsong area in particular or any uh, smaller pastor or ministry that gets caught in areas of moral compromise or failing, first step, Galatians 6.1, pray for the guy because you know if not by the grace of God, and probably already, there go I. Yeah. Up on the other hand, we note, uh, but they're teachers. Yeah, that's why you should be careful to make sure your walk with God is consistent before teaching those positions. Yeah, you'll incur a stricter judgment. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just for those you're not familiar with Hillsong, uh, it originated in Australia in uh, 1983. Uh, it was uh, founded uh, by uh, a couple of uh, very prominent uh, individuals, uh, Brian Houston. Uh, was uh, one of the individuals that uh, started Hillsong, but a uh, young uh, charismatic pastor in both sense of the terms named Carl Lentz was the one that really took it uh, to a higher level. Uh, Hillsong was uh, a blessing to many in the body because uh, like uh, a lot of churches like Bethel and Elevation, uh, a lot of uh, really wonderful Christian music seemed to come out of uh, these uh, these churches, and uh, people were really ministered to by that. Uh, I think kind of what happened was uh, Hillsong almost became a victim of its own success, and then it started to spread. Uh, when it came to the United States, uh, Lenz uh, really became uh, Hillsong's uh, shining star. Uh, he was so famous, he was rubbing elbows with uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Justin Bieber, Chris Pratt, all identified with Hillsong churches. And uh, again, uh, it just seemed like uh, they were uh, uh, just uh, uh, really uh, growing by leaps and bounds. Unfortunately, a number of scandals began to hit. Uh, uh, again, uh, Carl Lentz and, uh, and uh, Houston uh, both uh, were accused of improprieties, and uh, the uh, documentary that is shown in the Discovery Plus channel, it's a three-part documentary about Hillsong, uh, talks about uh, some of these other pastors that were involved with the uh, Hillsong movement. Uh, one of them who wrote a book, uh, his name's uh, Ellie Hardy, uh, the author of Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, uh, he said uh, that uh, the, the main value uh, of, uh, of Hillsong was protect the brand at any cost. Uh, in other words, there was uh, not accountability uh, that people would have that would go off the rails. It was just more or less swept under the rug. Uh, another article about a Hillsong church up in Phoenix. I really don't know if there's a Hillsong church in Tucson. I haven't heard of one, not that it might not exist. But uh, the uh, Hillsong pastor in Phoenix uh, said they were stepping back from an association with Hillsong uh, because Hillsong's uh, leadership, uh, which is off-site and in many cases overseas, uh, exercised, uh, you know, overwhelming control over local flocks. Uh, you know, all of the, um, the, the money in uh, the direction of Hillsong went through a very tight-knit uh, board that seemed to be, well, kind of protecting themselves. So, you know, whether these charges are true or not, you know, I think the, the secret of life is this, and I speak as someone who's been in ministry since uh, 1983. If you put your faith and trust in an organization, in, in a uh, structure, sooner or later, you are going to find yourself radically let down. 
uh, there is only one person who is worthy of your trust, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, we're part of the Calvary Chapel movement, and uh, when Pastor Chuck Smith, who uh, was uh, just really marvelously used by God in the Calvary Chapel movement, passed away, a lot of people asked the question, what's going to happen to Calvary Chapel after Chuck passes on? And uh, when people would ask me that question and say, well, I can't tell you about Calvary Chapel in general, but I can tell you about Calvary Christian Fellowship, we're going to continue to do what we've always done. We are going to pray. We're going to teach God's Word chapter by chapter, book by book, and verse by verse. We're going to love people and make sure that that stays our focus. We're going to do our best to simply teach God's Word simply as uh, the example of what God used in the original Calvary Chapel movement uh, really showed that God honors that sort of thing. Now, uh, you know, I think I said this on Sunday, uh, there are certain passages and certain takes on the scripture uh, that Pastor Chuck had, and I served under him as an assistant pastor at Costa Mesa for a number of years. There are certain things that I would disagree with him on, not the essentials for sure, but but certain takes and certain things that he would say I didn't wholeheartedly agree with. And what I tell our flock is that's why we are not called smithereens. Uh, We don't follow the teachings of Chuck Smith. In fact, if we follow the teachings of Chuck Smith, the exclusion of the Bible, I think Chuck Smith, more than anyone else, would really be disappointed by all of that. The most important thing is that we follow Jesus Christ. We don't get hung up on labels. We don't get hung up on groups. We don't get hung up on being a part of this tribe or that tribe. Does that happen in Calvary Chapel circles? Oh, you betcha it does. Uh, Human nature does what it does, you know. People are competitive. Pastors, I want to tell you, we are really competitive cusses at heart. And uh, we can get in the place where we're button heads with each other. But uh, the, the, the bottom line is this. If we focus in on what God honored in the original Calvary Chapel, uh, when Chuck started Calvary Chapel, uh, he uh, started it with 17 people, a church in Costa Mesa, a little country church on the edge of town, and half of them were his own family. And, uh, you know, it was just uh, something that the Lord did. Uh, He and his wife uh, began to have a burden for the hippies that they would see in the Orange County area. Uh, And uh, they began to reach out to them and began to share God's word with them. And one thing led to another, and the Lord blessed. Uh, The thing I really love about Calvary Chapels is that there's a simplicity there. Uh, We are a fellowship of churches. We're not a denomination. That is, it's a voluntary association with others in the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, Costa Mesa isn't the mother church. Uh, we all are independent churches legally and spiritually, and uh, we're given the freedom uh, to be able to uh, pursue the vision that God has for us. Now, there are certain Calvary Chapel, uh, uh, I, I would say, essentials, uh, distinctives, that anyone who puts a dove out in front of their uh, church should try to follow, and some Calvaries do, and some Calvaries really don't. And when people say, well, what do you think about this Calvary over here? I always say, well, go into it with an open Bible. But as far as uh, what Calvaries are all about, uh, you want to find out more about where we're coming from on essential doctrinal issues, you can either uh, go online and read our value of knowing the scoop on our doctrinal stand, uh, or if uh, you like, uh, go to... uh, uh, the word for today.com and get a hold of a book called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. You can come by here uh, at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'll be happy to give you one of those books. And it's a book where Chuck Smith lays out how God has uniquely used the Calvary Chapel movement. But the moment that we become enamored of a movement rather than the master, 
I think we kind of miss it. And, and, and it's such an, an old uh, problem. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, we say, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then either he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. You know, there's one foundation that we need to lay, and that's Jesus, period. And uh, if we do that, then that's fine. Human beings, you know, some people are ministered to at our church. Some people are ministered to at other churches. We don't insist that everybody has to be ministered to here. It's, it's you know, dip, cup of tea. And, hey, viva the, la difference, you know. I mean, people that go to a Hillsong church, I don't know if they'd really be all that entertained by what's going on here. They might find it a little, you know, academic or something. Uh, but uh, I'm glad there's different churches out there that meet different people and minister their needs. If they're preaching the Word of God, then good on them. Right. So. And speaking of which, a uh, question from Joato, who wants to know, uh, would you say Pentecostal is a cult or a denomination with wrong doctrine? Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, something that's brought up a lot. And I try to be careful demonizing a whole denomination because at its root, and I'm sure in many unknown but certainly still significant to the lives of those who are attending them circumstances they are still rooted in a movement that wants to emphasize the study of god's word on personal time and evangelism as well as the glorification of god now whether that's what happens in their church services is one thing uh it's meant primarily in the Pentecostals listening, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason why they're more entertainment-based and experience-based, and a lot of uh, uh, Southern Baptist churches do this as well, is they get people excited about God with the intention not to say, okay, you got your Jesus fix of the week, now go and live like hell. It's to encourage personal Bible study afterwards, not to substitute, and again, Bible teaching churches can fall into this trap, say, well, you studied your Bible for the week, now you don't have to think about it anymore. It's the same issue. If you run into a Pentecostal person who has bad doctrine, then I'd say you ran into a person who has bad doctrine. If you run into a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or whatever. But if, on the other hand, we're to say, does the whole group suddenly become a red flag? No, you have to judge it on a church-by-church and a person-by-person basis. Unless you're a part of an organization that is founded on fundamentally anti-Christ individual or uh, principles like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, then I would not say a Pentecostal church is any more apostate than I would claim I was. But if, on the other hand, I go there and I see unbiblical practices, unbiblical fruit coming out of someone's life and uh, essentially like what we dealt with earlier. It's like, oh, I take these traditions, I read them into the Bible, and then I misapply my misinterpretation that's not even in the Bible to begin with, and I say it's biblical. That's a problem. But if, on the other hand, you just go to church and it's producing good fruit in your life, I don't care if it's Pentecostal, Presbyterian, or other words I can't spell. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I think the, the important thing, uh, you know, Sean, is uh, when we talk about other churches— that may not be my cup of tea. I, I don't think I would really get a lot out of hanging out in a Pentecostal church. Uh, just be too distracting for me. You know, that's not really look, what I look for when I gather together with God's people. But there are people that I know that go to Pentecostal churches, love the Lord, sharing their faith, leading people to Christ. Great, good on them. Here's the deal. Um, 
when we start to get into the, are these people really Christians or are they heretics or something like that? Sean, what uh, are the basic things that we have to agree upon in order to look at someone and say, you're my brother in the Lord? Well, first, do we believe in the same God? Do we believe in many gods or the true and living God as Scripture dictates? Uh, If someone were to say, well, I'm a polytheist or a henotheist or all those things, that's not the God we worship. I'd say you got to get that sorted out first. We believe in one and only one God, the God of Israel, the one who's revealed himself in human history. That's the second non-negotiable. How did he do that? That Jesus Christ was that very God revealed not only physically to Israel but the whole world as that God, and since that God claimed to be the true and living God, that he is the only God. The third thing I clarify is not only what Jesus said about himself, but how we have a relationship with him, that we are saved from our sins, separation from God forever, because of what he's done for us. We use the term grace, it just means beautiful, his inherent goodness towards us, not because we did something, but God did something. That's the third. And the fourth is, as I've referenced along the way, where we get all this information from. Is the Bible your authority on what God is and isn't, what Jesus said and didn't say, and what Jesus did to verify the things he said? Those things are in place, then I could care less what you do on the Sunday, Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, or today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so important that we have that in place because oftentimes we can be passionate about certain issues, but, but they're side issues, Yeah, you know, I, I, and, and it isn't that they aren't important to us. You know, for instance, the, the timing of the rapture of the church, I'm absolutely passionate about the pre-tribulation rapture position. But I want to look at somebody that takes a mid-trip position and say, oh, you're not a believer because you have a different uh, idea of eschatology. Last time I checked, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, didn't say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in that God has raised him from the dead and have a proper view of the timing of the rapture, you will be saved. You know, the, 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 we really have to, in a sense, keep the non-negotiables as limited as we possibly can. Passionate, obviously, about things that are negotiable. We should know what we believe and why we believe it. But uh, I'm never going to uh, turn my back on someone who goes to a Pentecostal church who loves Jesus, has received him as their Savior, who uh, puts their faith and trust in his finished work of the cross, and say, well, just because you're more expressive in worship than you know, I tend to be comfortable with, um, you know, I'm not going to, you know, just like someone that uh, likes, say, a high church situation with organ music and stained glass. I'm not into that. But, boy, I, I've sure met some wonderful Christians who are into that. Uh, and uh, I think it's wonderful that there are high churches with the stained glass and the organ music. And I think it's great that there's Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches where people can be more expressive. And then there's people like us. Uh, it seems like uh, the charismatics think that we're Baptists and the Baptists think we're charismatics. Uh, so maybe, you know, that's encouragement that we're right there in that middle where God wants us to be. So, all right. Uh, question from Yari. Um, I'll try and translate this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but can God still use false teachers or ministries that were ultimately based on fraud? Uh, Yari, we first need to God honors his word. Yeah, and that's what we want to draw attention to. When we're talking about, oh, I was saved by this pastor or this ministry. Uh, Dad, have you ever saved anybody? Not in my ministry. I hope people don't think I've saved them. Has Calvary (laughs) Christian Fellowship as a 
organization written on our tax forms and so forth has that ever saved anybody no so what is god using in this building or among these people that ultimately results in salvation is it the brand name is it the sign is it the nomination or is it his spirit well obviously kind of giving you a layup there <laughs> uh, obviously it's the the spirit of god working through his truth to introduce us to his son who reconciles us to the father. So if we come to things like, say, for example, the Toronto blessing, completely unbiblical, completely chaotic, you know, people use that to dismiss Christianity, but someone had a legitimate experience there with God and were saved as a result. And they're still bearing fruit to this day. Does that validate the Toronto blessing or does that validate that God used his spirit in spite of the people that were making bird noises? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Yari, if we, encounter groups saying like, well, I came out of that church and does that mean I'm a false convert? No, what converted you wasn't the church. It was the, you get the idea. So yeah. just make sure that those two aren't, things aren't confused. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get to this as well. A uh, question that was sort of a follow-up of our uh, Bible study in the book of Luke uh, chapter 21 uh, in verse 34, it says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be counted worthy of these things? Okay, well, I guess we have to ask, is the answer given in the chapter itself? The answer is no. Is the chat is the uh, conversation clarify that point? The answer is no. So we have to go to other passages that note this worthiness and make sure it reconciles with the speaker. Yeah, and, and that's the huge question, right? Right. Um, you know, when this subject comes up, there are those who will teach that. Uh, well, you see, the rapture; those who are going to be snatched out before the storm. That's a, a question of merit. Uh, we have to live a meritorious life in order to be raptured. And if you're yeah, a backslidden uh, Christian, uh, you know, if you're a person who's struggling with doubts, uh, you're going to walk, uh, wake up in the morning and, you know, your husband's razor is going to be buzzing in the sink or, you know, you're going to hear, uh, you know, oh, uh, millions of people disappeared and Name you're not going to make it, you know, like the movies say. So, you know, when people teach that, you know, I, I think they teach it and they probably got good intentions in that they kind of want to fire people up and make sure that our deeds are as good as our doctrine, which certainly something that the Bible encourages to, us to do. But they miss something here. Why are we going to get raptured in the first place? Well, the reason we're going to get raptured, snatched out before the storm, isn't because God looks at us and goes, oh, those guys will collapse like a house of cards in a stiff wind if they go through anything tough, so I'm going to get them out of there. No, the reason that we're going to be raptured before the final seven-year period of time called the tribulation is because that seven-year period of time is referred to as a time of God's wrath. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what makes us worthy to be a part of the rapture? Well, it's the same thing that makes us worthy of not getting tossed into hell as soon as we depart this life. Not anything we do for God, but what Jesus has done for us. Uh, you know, I, I just go back to John chapter 5 and verse 24 where Jesus said, Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me 
has eternal life. He will not enter into judgment, but is passed from death into life. I can't think of any greater judgment on somebody than ending up being left behind at the rapture, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the big question, Sean, don't you think, is what makes us worthy in the first place? Is it what we do for God or what God's done for us? Yeah, and that's the whole point. If in the passage it doesn't give the explanation, then we have to go to other ones. Right. What Jesus taught about our worthiness before God is entirely on the basis of what he has done for us. If we want to stick to red letters, so to speak, uh, we go to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Notice not to dodge the issue or go to a whole other conversation. The question was, how may we work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom the, uh, he has sent. Right. In his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of John, continuing on this theme of how we are made worthy before God, notice that in John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said, sanctify them by, your tr- by truth, your word is truth. Right. And that he goes on to say that you not only have kept them out from the world, but I pray not that they would be taken out of it, but that they would be kept from the evil one, and right. noting that I have set these ones aside. And then he goes on to pray for those who would believe because of their testimony. Now notice, because they did good works because of their testimony? No, because they believed. Those are the things that Jesus emphasizes over and over again is what solidifies, notice not defines, but solidifies our relationship with God. And once that's established, then we can deal with the works issue and what a Christian life looks like. But if we say, oh, well, a partial rapture theory or worthiness and so forth, no, what it, what makes anyone worthy before God? It's that, and that's just what goes back to the book of Jeremiah, for corn's sake. Yeah. It's talking about his work making us worthy. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, a bit of clarification in, in the uh, wonderful promise uh, that God gives to the faithful church at Philadelphia. In uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, we read this, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Um, okay, How are they keeping his command to persevere? Well, again, Jesus earlier says, You have a little strength, but kept my word and have not denied my name. There you go. Well, a little strength is the power of the Holy Spirit, keeping God's word first and foremost, and not denying Jesus' name, walking in truth and life. And you don't have to worry, you'll be there at the rapture. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.